With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Hill for FM News 101. Quiet, please. Ladies and gentlemen. You ready for the big show? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Never apologize for being patriotic. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. And now... Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host... My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and welcome to a Wednesday on the Radio Northwest Network. In a moment... I want to tell you about something that uh, Governor Tina Kotek of Oregon announced yesterday. Uh, and it is, it, she thinks this is great news, that the federal government has now given the go-ahead, the initial go-ahead, to finalize two wind energy areas off the Oregon coast. And I know there are a lot of people who stand to make a lot of money if this ever happens. And, of course, Governor Kotek is bragging why these areas have the potential to generate 2.4 gigawatts, uh, of energy, every clean, renewable energy, enough power for 830,000 homes. There's a problem with it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work financially. And I'll get into the details of that. I'll give you some solid information. Because to the greenies who are in the governments of Oregon and Washington, they love this idea. And they especially love it because it means the federal government under Joe Biden and the Congress are going to shovel out billions and billions of dollars. And whether that money comes to the Northwest and actually ends up producing power or not, the money is here. So the moneyed interests are very interested in having all this stuff get approval. Whether it actually works at the end of the day, well, that's the American taxpayer problem. And ultimately, the ratepayers problem, because your rates are going to go sky high if this stuff works out. But it is so far out of re the range of reality, and I'm going to give you real examples where wind projects off the east coast of the United States are already collapsing. And they're collapsing for a simple reason. Not that the technology isn't there. It's the fact is the money isn't there. There's no way to make this pencil out. Natural gas is dramatically cheaper. Now, if you were unhappy about the fact that since 2006, Northwest utility rates have doubled. And in January, for many of you, you saw a big bump in the cost of power. Not natural gas, that's actually down. But electric power, that went up dramatically in January. It's more than doubled since 2006. So if you like gigantic energy bills, you're going to 
love the windmill project. But Governor Tina Kotek yesterday afternoon sends out a press release. I was one of the recipients. I looked at this and I thought, this is a colossal disaster. And all you have to do is take a look at where the projects are going that are tracking a couple of years ahead on the East Coast, and you find out why it's such a big disaster. It's a warning piece of information that we ought to be paying attention to in the Pacific Northwest. Whether you love green energy or not, if it doesn't pencil out financially, then it doesn't work at all. But I'll get to that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. We call it the best conversation in talk journalism for a reason. And if you want to join the conversation, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. In fact, I had a back and forth with a young lady who wrote to me and said, I hate all the things you say. I said, call the show and be a naysayer. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to do that. And I said, well, if you have the courage of your convictions, you'll do that. If you don't have the courage, if you don't actually believe what you're saying, then you don't have it. It's one thing or the other, but the opportunity is there at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our poll on X. The question, a brand new one every day, and this one is fresh because we all know about the report last week in which Joe Biden's DOJ said Joe Biden committed serious crimes involving national security. He, in their words, willfully kept and retained and disseminated national classified information. He kept documents for decades. And they said, so even though he's clearly guilty, now the DOJ investigation didn't call him guilty, that would be up to a jury and a judge. But what they said was he willfully kept classified information and he disseminated some of the information to people who certainly didn't have a national security clearance to even be able to put their eyeballs on it. So he did the crime. Will he do the, the, the time? And the answer was no. His own DOJ concluded that Joe Biden is such a senile old man. His memory is so bad. Uh, how bad is it, Lars? It's so bad that you can't prosecute him because a jury would look at him, in the words of the DOJ, as an elderly man with a poor memory. And he's the guy calling the shots from the Oval Office right now. So our question today, the White House is considering whether to release the transcript of President Joe Biden's interview with the special counsel, Robert Hur, where he talked about all these things he had done. And the fact that he couldn't remember the years that he was vice president, and that was only about seven years ago. He couldn't remember the year in which his beloved son, Bo, had died. That was only nine years ago. That's how bad his memory is. So the White House is considering releasing the transcript. I'm just going to ask you, as an American citizen, should the White House release the elderly man with a bad memory transcript, or should they keep it secret to try to cover up what else we might learn from reading what Joe Biden had to say when those investigators sat down and talked to him? Now, if you listen to his staff, his paid staff, paid with your taxpayer dollars, by the way, will be happy to tell you, oh, Joe is smart as a tack. He's smart as a whip. He's completely with it. He knows what's going on. And then all you have to do is turn on the news and watch what he says and what he does and where he stumbles and where he bangs his head and where he can't remember what day it is, what time it is, where he is or who he's talking to. With all of that in mind, should they release the transcript or not? 
You'll find the question on X, at Lars Larson Show. You'll also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, here was the news that broke late yesterday afternoon. Too late to do much with it. Oregon's governor is thrilled at the idea that the BOEM, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, has announced that two wind areas off the Oregon and Washington coast have been cleared for building windmills off the coast. 195,000 acres. And by the way, they didn't bother to talk to the tribes about it, so the tribes are angry. They haven't bothered to take into, into account the concerns of coastal communities that are dependent on fishing that is absolutely certain to be messed up by what they're going to do with this, these wind programs, where they're going to put this stuff off limits. But here's the really important part you have to understand. On the east coast of the United States, there are similar projects, only they're farther down the path. And guess what? They're falling apart. BP, the big energy giant, just wrote off half a billion dollars in its investment in wind. Eversource, 300 million. And a foreign company, Orsted, they wiped out $5.6 billion. They say the wind energy industry is, quote, fundamentally broken. And you understand why. If you get electric power from natural gas, it comes in at about 37 bucks per megawatt hour. How much is wind energy as it's estimated now? More than triple that number, $118 per megawatt hour. And to get out of the reds, these firms had said, you're going to have to let us charge up to $190 per megawatt hour or about five times as much for this wind energy. Now, is that something that the Northwest really wants to buy into? Do you want to tie up all that ocean and all that fishing and ignore the tribes and everything else to get energy that costs six, five or six times as much as the energy you could buy from clean, green, natural gas? I'd say no to that. Back in a moment, I'll have the Northwest nonsense, and I'll talk about the passing of a hero this week right here in the Pacific Northwest. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. And so, if St. Jude doesn't do it, who will? St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures. Saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. Recently, the U.S. Navy delivered tons of food to hungry people halfway around the world. But you could help someone in your own community simply by donating a can of soup. 
Last week, a Navy doctor saved the life of a total stranger. Just like you could by giving a pint of blood. The men and women of America's Navy do some amazing things to make the world a better place. So can you. Whether it's by donating food or simply giving time, right in your own backyard. Brought to you by America's Navy. Hi, I'm Janelle Hale, founder and CEO of the National Breast Cancer Foundation. Early detection saved my life. It could save yours, too. To learn more about what every woman needs to know about breast cancer, visit NBCF.org. in control. Our Constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. This is the Lars Larson Show. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you bloody well right, you know he got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias. America lost a great hero yesterday, born and raised in Oregon. He grew up hunting deer and made his mark hunting men. Marine Corps Sergeant Chuck Mawinney called Vietnam the ultimate hunting trip. A friend of his who knew that I had met him and that I admired Sergeant Mawinney emailed me yesterday afternoon to deliver the news that the deadliest Marine Corps sniper in history had passed away in his longtime Baker City home. Mawinney was born in Lakeview, Oregon, and he had just graduated from high school in 1967 when he got his draft notice. So he went and talked to the recruiters. A recruiter from the Marines promised that he could go in after deer season, so he ditched his plans to be an aviator and decided to become a Marine instead. And it's no surprise that a teen who grew up hunting in eastern Oregon, where long shots are generally the rule, would end up in the Marine Corps sniper school. Sent to Vietnam, he exceeded all their expectations with 103 confirmed kills and 216 probable kills in just 16 months in Vietnam. Just remember, every one of those kills likely saved the lives of fellow Marines and other service members. He came home to Oregon. He was so quiet about his service that years later, when a reporter came to tell his story, and I wish it had been me, but it was not, some of his neighbors didn't even know that Chuck Mawinney had been in the military let alone that he had scored such an impressive record. He then worked for the U.S. Forest Service for the next 30 years and retired. He passed away yesterday at the age of 75. Rest in peace, Sergeant Mawinney. By the way, it's happy birthday to the state of Oregon, which celebrates his birthday on Valentine's Day, and a happy Valentine's Day to both my sweetheart of 27 years, and that would be Tina, and, of course, my junior sweetheart, who is my granddaughter, Payson. Happy Valentine's Day to both of you. Our question of the day comes in from Greg. Lars, I'm not a fan of Secretary of Homeland Security Mayorkas, and I'm glad to see that he may be fired for not doing a good job. But isn't this just a case of shooting the messenger? I think I recall the so-called president put the vice president, Harris, in charge of the border. Shouldn't the Republicans be calling out the manager of this team for failing the company? Harris is, as most management does, keeping her job for being such a failure. The Republicans just can't seize the opportunities. Signed, Greg. Well, I'd answer it this way. 
Number one, Mayorkas deserves to be impeached. He has lied to the U.S. Congress. He has violated federal laws. He has opened up our borders. And yes, he took his marching orders from the Oval Office, and Joe Biden ought to be impeached for that and many other high crimes and misdemeanors that Joe Biden has committed. But let's put it this way. Should Mayorkas have said, if the boss is going to tell me to violate the law, to lie to Congress, and to lie to the American public, I will simply tender my resignation and go off to another job. He could have done that. He didn't. He deserved to be impeached. And now Senate Democrats will have to find an excuse for not actually holding the trial, which is required by the Constitution, after there is an impeachment. I have a feeling the Democrats will say, we're not going to put him on trial because we don't want to have to vote and say that he's not guilty of the things he's accused of. That's a problem. But number two, should Joe Biden be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors? Absolutely. But one step at a time. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really. Find out right now. Can you imagine making a $150 million error and then keeping your job? Well, I'd offer up Jay Inslee, governor of the state of Washington. And Jay Inslee has made just such an error, including his executive branch of government. That That's what the governor runs. Well, the Washington GOP points out that in the state capitol in Olympia, they made a $150 million error in the budget. And why did they make it? Well, because they passed a new income tax. They call it a capital gains excise fee, but it's not actually a fee. It is a tax. Now, I understand the Washington State Supreme Court owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Democrat Party, and those justices actually looked at a capital gains tax that taxes on only those people who have capital gains in business or in stocks or bonds, other kinds of investments, where the capital gain is more than a quarter of a million dollars. That means this tax basically applied to about a dozen people in the entire state. But is a, is a tax on capital gains a tax on income? I would say yes to that. The IRS says yes to that. Any state that has a revenue department like Oregon would say capital gains taxes are income taxes. But as I said, the Washington Supreme Court is uh, owned lock, stock and barrel by the Democrats who contribute most of the money for their reelection. So I don't trust the Washington State Supreme Court. They decided that a capital gains tax is not an income tax and thus is legal in the state of Washington. There's a lot more in the way of detail, but let's not drill down on that. We've done it before on the show. But then what happened when they actually administered this capital gains tax that the Washington Supreme Court says is not an income tax? They goofed. They double booked about $50 million in anticipated tax receipts. They put it on the books. It doesn't actually exist because they put it on twice. They made some other errors in the actual receipts. And as always, when a brand new tax goes into effect, a lot of people will say, well, in that case, I'm going to move some of that income from this year to next year. I'll put off actually having to pay the tax. They made that mistake as well. They also left uh, lost Jeff Bezos, who famously decided to move to Florida, and I don't blame him at all. Remember, it was Judge Learned Hand who said any man, and he meant men or women, any man or woman may arrange his affairs so as to pay the smallest amount of taxes. He says paying taxes is not patriotism, and Judge Learned Hand was absolutely right. So... 
All of those errors total up to a $150 million shortfall, except the Washington legislature, under the control largely of Democrats, has already written its budget. So now they've got to go back and cut $150 million out of the budget because they goofed. They made a mistake with all that money, and now they're going to have to cut that out of the budget. That's going to be painful as well. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com, comes in from Burgess. Lars, my tinfoil hat is ringing. They are going to go against the big guy right now. Looks like they're setting up Joe Biden. The country is a complete disaster, economy, crime, etc. But I think that's a distraction to push through the illegals. Flood the country with new Democrat voters. The Democrats know it's wrong on every level, but they will push it till Joe collapses. And then they'll come out with, we never realized how bad he was. The Biden administration broke every law in the book, fabricated false numbers. We would impeach Joe and prosecute him but he's too senile, or dead by then. The fix is in, signed Burgess. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to take your calls. And I'm really curious, is Jay Inslee going to take the blame for this massive error and the fact that the budget is going to have to be rewritten by $150 billion? Does that make any sense to anybody? And I want to give you one quick update about some breaking news. At the parade for the Chiefs, the Super Bowl champs, the parade in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, there's been a report of shots fired. Police are on the scene. We'll get you more details as they become available. Glad to have you with me. If you want to join the conversation, it's 866-439-5277. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Senator John Kennedy on the Washington establishment. The Washington establishment is working harder than an ugly stripper to cover up whatever happened. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this Wednesday. Uh, I want to talk about a park in downtown Portland. Now, I understand we do this for Seattle and other cities as well when there's been a particular problem. And the problem at this park is that it's been turned into a shooting den for uh, drugs. It's been turned into a place where people, well, I guess relieve themselves to put it politely for radio uh it's it's been covered with trash and garbage and human waste and the whole nine yards so now finally the city of portland is going to fix it up the question is how do they fix it up and whether they create another problem or whether they solve some problems uh our friends at willam week you can find the story at wweek.com and its news editor aaron mesh joins me now aaron welcome back good to be here so tell me about this park, uh, formerly known as O'Brien Square, or you know, to the to the hip out there, Needle Park or Paranoid Park, and why it's called that, and what is the plan to fix up what they now call Darcel Fifteen Plaza, named after the, uh, I guess, the most uh, well-known uh, uh, um, uh, female impersonator, because I think that's what he actually. I've talked to him or before his passing. I talked to him a number of times. Uh, why, why? How they plan to fix it up? And why is there a dispute about how the city is going to do this? So the the, the plan for Darcel 15 Plaza is to, is to make it into a kind of an event space that can be used for, like, concerts. I mean, talking about small concerts, right? Like little Very little small. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, and uh, I have a dog park and uh, and generally make it into, like, a, a little plaza that, that serves – 
Well, maybe serves the neighborhood, but perhaps more accurately serves the needs of the hotels that surround that area. Because that is the neighborhood, right? In many ways, that is the neighborhood, right? So I yeah. think that's fair to say. Um, here's what I think is the – well, let's, let's back up. You, you've accurately described the context of this, of this park. So it's been known for decades as Paranoid Park. Uh, and it's an interesting piece of architecture. Uh, you know, this is something that happened a lot in the Northwest, is that there, were, uh, there was a lot of fairly interesting um, – brickwork structures that were that created like kind of hiding places where a lot of um, crime and blight and drug use went unmonitored so i think one of the things that like seattle certainly realized it with a with a series of fountains that became known for uh, for hosting sexual assault uh, portland had difficulties with the halperin fountains uh, and uh, especially O'Brien Square, aka Paranoid Park, became known as something of a of a, a shooting gallery or a place where you would shoot up with uh, with heroin and other drugs. This is not anything new. This is how it's been for a long time. Right. Uh, and the part that's because there was this parking garage underneath the structure, and that created a lot of uh, of nooks and crannies around the elevated structure. So what everyone agrees is that the best thing to do here is to keep it as level as possible. Uh, where there's a lot of disagreement is whether or not there needs to be a stage, whether there needs to be a fence, uh, whether there should be food carts that could engage the space. Anthony Effinger, who wrote the story, talked to somebody who's had a bird's eye view from a neighboring building for 30 years of the space. And his perspective is very simple. Keep this space as flat and open as possible so that there can be eyes on the square. Great idea. And, and in doing that, not spend nearly the kind of money that they may be planning to spend, which is you know, some kind of stage, uh, a shade covering, a chandelier to honor Darcel 15 uh, and all of this. Uh, keep, the, keep it simple. And, and keep it flat so when police officers drive by or the public goes by, you can see what's going on there. That seems pretty sensible. Yeah, if you look at Director Park near Fox Tower, just a few blocks away, that plaza, I think, actually is a pretty nice piece of architecture or public architecture in that uh, it's actually possible for a squad car to drive up into the square. And I think that's fairly important to be able to keep the place functional, is that you need to have the ability for law enforcement and first responders to, to move into that space quickly. And you also need to have essentially a discouraging of the possibility of having somewhere to hide. Um, if people have somewhere to hide, they almost certainly will do things in a place they can hide that they would not want to be seen doing by the rest of us. Crimes, uh, assaults, they, sexual behavior, drug behavior, all nasty things that keep all the legitimate users of the park away. Yeah, and I've been thinking about this today, and, and, and one of the controversies around this space is the question of whether or not it should be fenced. Uh, and the, the winning bid includes a fence, clean and safe, which is a, which is a uh, security and trash pickup nonprofit, wants the contract to run this space and wants the fence very badly because they feel that it will make their job managing the space easier. And, and I've been opposed to the fence from the beginning, and I still am opposed to the fence. And one of the reasons is 
I genuinely think it goes against the public interest. So if you have a space that is a public park, the idea of it being offends me, and I've been trying to figure out why. And I think the reason is that ultimately, if I'm a taxpayer and I work a job and I pay my taxes and I want to go to the park on Saturday, I want two things. I want real access to that space. I want to know that it is open to me. And I also want to know that it's going to be used for the for the intent that it was designed for and not used for something else like shooting up drugs. And I think if I have to choose between those two things, it's a false choice. I shouldn't have to choose as a taxpayer of the city whether or not I'm going to like have a place that's fenced off from me in order to discourage drug use. The city should discourage drug use anyway. I agree with you. You're sounding amazingly conservative. The other part about this is all these folks who say, we want more food carts. Look, as far as I'm concerned, food, there's nothing wrong with food carts, but when, when you have already a whole bunch of locations for food carts, why would we turn over a public space and say, now we're going to let all these commercial users come in who are primarily going to do their business, correct me if I'm wrong, between probably 10 in the morning and maybe 9 o'clock at night, maybe on weekends a little bit later, which means that, that the space that's a public space ends up being occupied by commercial businesses. Does that make sense? I think that's a fair question. Uh, I do think that one of the positive things about food carts is that they, they create foot traffic. Uh, I do think it's an interesting, and I would be open to the idea that, that it's, a, it's a bad call to have food carts in that space because of the fact that it, once again, mixes the private and public use. Um, on the other hand, and this is something I, I'm just very open to, to almost any answer on this question, because on the other hand, for years, the city has said no food carts inside Portland's parks. Now, I don't, not, see, I, I don't agree with that. I, I think they ought to be there, but they just they want to all cluster together. And why? Because it's probably a better commercial opportunity. But does that serve the public or does that serve the commercial interest? And I'm all in favor of commercial, but this is a public space, right? Sure. I mean, like, like a good analogy here is, is vendors in national parks, I think. Yep. So if you, if you go to, to the Grand Canyon or to Crater Lake or to any of, any of our national parks, you will find p private vendors running the gift shop, the, the, the food, food concession, or, yeah. uh, you know, the, serving you the burgers and the elk steaks or whatever, right? And those are private vendors. Mostly it's Aramark for some reason. Uh, and I think there was at one time, Actually, that's not true. I've watched the Ken Burns series on the national parks. There was never a time that anybody objected to having private vendors in the parks. If anything, nope. at the beginning, there was an effort to, like, have even more private vendors in the parks, like selling you every trinket on God's green earth. And if it keeps away the druggies, I'm all for it. That's Aaron Mesh, the news editor. You can find the story at wweek.com, and I think it resonates in just about every city that has any kind of public space like that. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show. me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges, but how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. 
You could sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. I want to update you on what we know out of Kansas City, Missouri. There was a rally and a parade for the uh, celebration of the Chiefs' Super Bowl win, um, and then a shooting occurred. Uh, we don't know how many shots were fired, but we do know this. Several people were shot in Kansas City, Missouri. At this point, thank God, we have heard of no deaths. But we will update you on that. Two armed people have now been detained by the Kansas City Police Department. Uh, the rally happening, and apparently the shooting incident took place after the rally. Not during it or before it, but after the rally. We'll get you more details as they become available. Let me go to the phones. And if you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here on the Radio Northwest Network at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Kelly, welcome to the program, and thanks for listening on the network. What's on your mind? Oh, I, What's on my mind is, uh, so I read something here a couple days ago that kind of bothered me, uh, Olympia pass some some law without voters or nothing that you can't buy for instance on my truck i i run a 38 14 5 20 mud tire yeah you can't you can't buy anymore in washington state the cheaper manufactured tires for some reason you can only buy like top of the line made tires which makes no sense those are like a thousand bucks a piece people can't afford that my understanding is, Kelly, that, that there's legislation being considered. I don't like it. And what it has to do with is uh, is the, t the kind of tires, and it has to do more with not top of the line, but their environment, you know, the greenies, the tree huggers, the bunny lovers. Um, they, uh, they don't like the softer uh, rubber tires that are that are grippy in wet weather and in icy and snowy weather and they want to they want to start mandating that people buy a different kind of tire but i don't think that decision is done yet nor is every decision that's made by the legislature put to a public vote some of them should be i don't think i'd ever suggest that the i think it's roughly a couple of thousand different proposed bills or laws that are put to a vote would you want everything passed by state lawmakers to then be put to a vote uh, after that, I think it should be something like that. Anyway, every, every single every single new law should be put to a vote because that's you're going to be looking at a ballot that's like a phone book. Hmm. Well, a lot of people like me can't afford a thousand bucks a tire. That's why we buy these these other brands that are just as good, but they're two three hundred bucks a tire. And I don't think necessarily it's going to be expense. It's going to be. They want to. They want to make, and I don't like the new requirements they're proposing. But as as I understand it, they have not yet given final sign off to changing the rules, whether they're doing it through the bureaucracy or f through the legislature, uh, where they say, "Well, 
the rolling resistance on those softer rubber grippy tires the kind of tires that i like as well kelly uh, are uh, uh, they they cost gas mileage and you say that's all right i'd rather spend a little extra gas than slide off the road and i i think if you put that one to a vote it it gets shot down immediately uh, but it may be that they're that they're trying to do it either through legislation or through and we've talked about it on the show but that's that's the question is are they going to make a difference in 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 the requirements how soon do they kick in and let me tell you where the the fix is for you or me um they're only going to be even if they do this uh the state of washington wants to say you've got to buy a different kind of tire because the tires don't wear out as fast if they're a harder rubber they don't use as much gasoline because they have less rolling resistance Kelly, all you got to do is drive to either Oregon or Idaho and buy your tires there because all they can do is ban the sale of the tires. At this point, I haven't seen anything that indicates they're planning to ban the use of those tires. So if you simply buy your tires online or buy your tires out of state and put them on, then then you're good to go, as I understand the new rules. Okay. But I, I, I could not get behind you if you said, let's take everything that the legislature decides and then subsequently put it to a vote. And, Kelly, that might not have the result that you want, because if you're talking about putting hundreds or even thousands of different decisions, some of them fairly complicated and involved, to a public vote, and people pick up their ballot and they see, okay, you've got, you know, a dozen candidates to decide on in a general election. And then you've got to decide, you know, 50 or 100 different issues that have come before the legislature and people will either undervote, meaning they won't, they'll vote on the big races, they'll vote on president, senate, congress, uh, state legislature, city council, county commission, and then they'll leave everything else blank which means the decision will be made by very, very small groups of people. In fact, just this week, a young lady called me yesterday and was complaining that they were having a special election about school bond measures. And it happened this week on Tuesday. And she said when they have these elections during very, very off election times, a presidential election year, and yet holding an election in early February when they know the turnout is going to be very low, that means whoever does show up, those with a dog in the fight, are going to get the decision, but it'll be imposed on all of us. Do you want that? Not really. <laughs> Not really. And so if there are 50 or 100 things that the legislature has decided that you then put to a public vote, the people who are going to make it a special point to vote on one or another of those are only the people with some special interest on either side of the issue. So those people will say, make sure you vote on, you know, initiative, uh, initiative number or referendum number 575. And you'll look at it and say, I don't even know that what that's about. I'm not going to vote on it. And the people who do know what it's about will vote on it. And you'll get a decision you really won't like. But, Kelly, I appreciate the call. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated. 
But the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Quiet, please. You ready for the big show? Exactly 15 seconds. We'll be on the air. This is the Lars Larson Show. Never apologize for being patriotic. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. And now... Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday and it's the Radio Northwest Network and it's my genuine pleasure to provide the Northwest with what I consider honestly provocative talk radio. And talk about provocative. It seems that state lawmakers, well, at least the Democrat state lawmakers in the state of Oregon, are happy to let the situation continue in which more than a thousand people die and probably will die, maybe even many more than that, in the next 12 months because of overdoses in the thousand number. I'm talking about the fentanyl deaths last year and the estimated 13 fentanyl deaths that we're anticipating this year. So we already know that this is going to pile up the body bags big time. And what are the Democrats who are in charge of both the House and the Senate and the governor's office and every other significant state office in the state of Oregon going to do about it? They're going to do next to nothing. And I kind of expect, if I'm wrong about that, Representative Ed Deal, who represents the 17th district, is going to tell me that I'm wrong. Representative Deal, welcome back. Lars, great to be with you. So tell me this. A am I wrong? Am I wrong that the Democrats plan to do nothing meaningful to change this situation and we should just anticipate another you know, 1,000 to 1,300 overdose deaths this year? Lars, what they have proposed and what they plan on bringing to the floor is a fake fix. And it, if, if we go with that bill, more communities are going to continue to deteriorate. We're going to have more families lose loved ones and more people are going to die from drugs we cannot accept uh what they're proposing okay and i want i want you to confirm something if you believe it's true yeah. are the democrats doing this because they believe this is the best prescription for the state or are they doing it because to do otherwise to gut ballot measure 110 would absolutely anger some of their biggest political contributors of money to their campaigns because if well, people can understand that relationship they say hold on you're not making the de best decision for us you're making the best decision to keep money flowing to your campaign that i think puts a clarity to it that nothing else would well they're caught between a rock and a hard spot because they have their on one side they've got their progressive base and big donors on the east coast that put millions into this program they're continuing to funnel tens of thousands of dollars in to the state to keep it they've got them on one side and then on the other side they have reality which is the vast majority of oregon voters are demanding recriminalization they're demanding required treatment and they've to try and appease these two groups they've come up with something that will not work that will not work 
it looks like it's recriminalizing, but it isn't. And it, what I want to ask, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm Alex. just going to say, in terms of that, the Democrats, correct me if I'm wrong, are actually proposing the creation of a new and lower level of misdemeanor. They want to invent a brand new crime that's just barely above a traffic ticket, but at the bottom end of the bottom end of crimes, as some kind of lower misdemeanor than even a C misdemeanor. Is that where they're headed? They are headed that way, and we, we cannot accept that. And I'm asking your listeners to reach out to every Republican legislator on both sides of the cascades and hold firm on Class A. Class A is the only way. We're going to fix this problem. We cannot alter because we would see their bill by now already, Lars, but why we haven't because they don't have the votes. We know it's a fake fix. We cannot compromise on it. We, and we need all your listeners to make sure they tell their legislators to hold firm. Well, let, let me ask you, let me interrupt. Yeah. You said Republicans. What about reaching out to the Democrats? Because if the Democrats hear that there is a groundswell of public opposition to a non-fix, to a, a, de a definitely, uh, a decidedly deadly problem that is going to take over a 1,000 lives this year, may take as many as 1,300 lives, the Democrats need to hear that there's public opposition too, right? They absolutely do. And believe me, they, they have heard it. They look at the polls. That's why they're so split. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they're split in their group and they haven't voted on this because there's a, con a significant group in their caucus that knows that, uh, that this thing won't work. And so that's why the, the worst thing we can do for Republicans is split and try and find some compromise that we know is not going to work for Oregonians. And by the way, yeah, my personal we, we opinion is you need to go back to felony treatment of this because, Ed, there was a there was a piece of fiction that was sold to the public in Measure 110. They said, why, we're locking up hundreds or thousands of people for the simple crime of possession of a controlled substance. I've talked to prosecutors, and they've said, no, that's not true. We didn't send people to prison. We certainly threatened them with prison, but, but we didn't for the, you know, other than drug dealers or people who sold drugs to children, which is still illegal and still a serious crime, they don't send drug addicts to prison, but they do say, we may convict you of a felony. You could face the possibility of jail, and that got about 90, 95% of those people to sign up for treatment. That actually worked. Is going to a, a high-level misdemeanor going to do the trick, or do we need to go back to felony treatment of this, where a felony being threatened against an addict is, in some ways, I, I, I'll, I'll make a punchy comparison, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong. Every single cop in America has a gun. And we all know as citizens, law-abiding citizens, that if that cop faces the right situation, that he will pull that gun out and shoot a person dead. We all know that's, that that's possible. But we also know that the vast majority of cops don't have to pull their guns, don't have to shoot people. They don't. But it's the threat is always there. That's the kind of threat that was put to drug addicts when they showed up in front of a judge. And he said, I can send you to jail or prison or you can go into treatment, and they complied. Now, is that a good comparison, do you think? Well, that's a, I think that is a good comparison. And, you know, that's the, the, the charge is intended to incentivize them to get into treatment, like you said. And a Class A with a threat of up to a year in jail, 
uh, we believe and we agree with the chiefs of police and the sheriffs and the DAs and the League of Oregon Cities that that is a strong enough threat that okay. will incentivize two things. Get him in, get him into treatment and give up the drug dealers. Yeah. And if okay. You, now, if you the other that, thing I want to ask you about, Ed, I don't know yeah. of anybody who likes to be guinea pigged. I don't know of anybody who likes, likes it when they find <laughs> out you are being treated like a guinea pig, like a lab animal. And what has happened is all these rich folks on the East Coast have said, we want to try this idea out. So where can we do it? Should we try it in Illinois or, or in New York or should we try it in California? I know. We're going to try it on Oregon. We're going to make them the guinea pig for this. That's what they did, isn't it? It is what they did. And why they pick on Oregon? We have a fairly progressive voter base. We also are small or a low and very small investment. You can try an experiment in Oregon. I call us the Petri dish for every progressive idea that somebody in the country wants to do. And, and they did select Oregon for that, for that reason. They only spent a few million bucks. We didn't resist. Uh, we, we didn't even put up a defense against ballot measure 110. And it. Five million, five to six million dollars spent to pass something that is now killing Oregonians and Democrats support it because they see dollar signs attached to it. Anybody wants to be a naysayer on that, I'll take the call in a heartbeat. It's Wednesday and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. If you're th I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Lots of folks worry about their firearms, but Lars doesn't have to worry about Biden taking his guns. He stores them upstairs. This is the Lars Larson Show. Big iron on his head. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to jump in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our poll on X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show and on our website at Lars Larson.com. I want to mention a name you probably haven't heard me talk about recently, although we have talked about Tony Bobolinsky. Now, why is Tony Bobolinsky so very, very important? It's because there is an impeachment proceeding going against Joe Biden. A lot of you might and have wondered to me, well, why are we impeaching Mayorkas? Why aren't they impeaching Joe Biden? He's clearly committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, 
Some of the testimony that was taken from Tony Bobulinski, a lot of us have said Congress needs to get Tony Bobulinski in front of a congressional committee under oath and giving testimony about what he knows about the Biden crime family. Well, guess what? Tony Bobulinski gave that testimony and he gave it this week. And he even complains about it. He says, look, for four years, I've tried to tell the American people the truth about serious corruption at the very top of their government. That's the way he opened up his testimony to people in the House of Representatives, because there were people on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats. They did a closed door session in which they heard from Tody Bobulinski, who's a former business associate of Hunter Biden. And why is that important? Well, he was associated both with Hunter Biden and also with Devin Archer. Devin Archer has given some pretty devastating testimony as well. So what do we know about the Biden crime family at this point? I mean, I know that a lot of other things have kind of taken the place of this because there is such a crowded news environment these days that one day you're hearing about Joe Biden's theft of classified documents, and I really wish the mainstream media would refer to it as theft because he stole documents. I've told you that I define stealing as taking something that you have no legal right to take that does not belong to you. Well, Joe Biden stole classified documents for a period that is just short of 50 years. He admitted himself that he began taking classified documents about 50 years ago in 1974, and he's admitted that in on tape. But I think he loves these these distractions from the central issue, and that is, is Joe Biden sold out to uh, foreign interests in Ukraine, in Moscow, even in Beijing, in Kazakhstan? Well, tell, I want to tell you what we know about this, and I'll be glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. What have House Republicans put together in actual documented facts, most of it coming in in the last 12 months? A lot of this should have been looked at in 2019. The FBI had Hunter Biden's laptop in 2019. They very clearly saw that it was, number one, real. Number, not a Russian creation. Number two, that it belonged to Hunter Biden. He's finally fessed up that the computer belonged to him. And what was on that computer? It was information about the business dealings that he conducted in which he sold the Joe Biden name. Not Hunter Biden. He was selling his dad's name because at the time his dad was vice president of the United States and he'd been made the lead guy for Barack Obama on China and on Ukraine. And it turned out to be amazingly profitable for the Biden crime family. Number one, they've now documented that the Biden family and its associates received more than $24 million over a five-year period beginning in 2014 and ending in 2019. So some of that came in after Joe Biden left the office of the vice presidency. But it was very clear that he got the money because of favors that he did during the time he was vice president. The Biden family itself, if you take out the money that actually went to their associates, they got about $15 million of that sum. And if you've ever wondered how a guy like Joe Biden, who's never had a real job in his life. He came out of school. He ran in politics. He was then in the Senate for several decades. He was vice president for eight years, and now he's president of the United States. 
as a senator, he made between one hundred and fifty and one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year. So how does a guy with that kind of income, a healthy income for an average American, but not a get rich income? How does a guy like that end up owning several homes worth millions of dollars? How does he end up having the kind of you know, economic situation that most people would think they died and gone to heaven if they got it. Well, former Biden associate Tony Bobulinski showed up before the Congress Tuesday of this week, testified behind closed doors. And what Bobulinski said is that the president was not only aware of the influence peddling where his son was saying, I've got Joe Biden's ear. I can get my dad to do favors for you. And he sold that and demanded millions of dollars from the people he was doing business with. Again, that's well documented, too. He was doing business in Ukraine with the company Burisma. He was doing business in China with CEFC, which is a major or was a major Chinese energy company. And what you have to understand about any company that does business in China, if it's a China company that does business in China, it answers to the Chinese Communist government. It does their bidding. So here's what Bobulinski said in his opening statement. It is clear to me that Joe Biden was the brand being sold by the Biden family. He's given the testimony at long last. His family's foreign influence peddling operation from China to Ukraine and elsewhere sold out to foreign actors who are seeking to gain influence and access to Joe Biden and the United States government. Joe Biden was more than a participant in and a beneficiary of his family's business. He was an enabler, despite being buffered by a complex scheme to maintain plausible deniability. That's from Tony Bobulinski's opening statement. Now, if you wonder, Lars, why should I give a damn about this? What difference does it make today what Joe Biden was doing a decade ago as vice president of the United States? Here's where it matters. I want you to pay attention to what Joe Biden is doing to America's energy future. America is a country that God has blessed with endless energy. We have hundreds of years of coal. We're not going to use them. We have hundreds of years of natural gas. We're not using it. We're cutting down the use dramatically, even though for all those climate change uh, worriers, uh, natural gas is one of the best ways to clean up the environment you would ever get. So why is this important now? Joe Biden has decided that America is going to throw out use of coal and natural gas and oil. In fact, he proudly proclaimed at his State of the Union address that in 10 years, America won't even be using oil. He plans a quick changeover to electric, electric cars, electric heat, electric stoves, electric everything. And how's that going to happen? America's energy today is largely provided with fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. Joe Biden plans to abandon all of that stuff we have in abundance. And what are we going to power America with instead? We're going to power it with electricity from solar panels made in China, windmills made in China. And believe me, American car companies are now discovering they can't sell electric vehicles and make a profit. Ford loses fifty to $60,000 every time they sell an electric car they made. But who can make those cars at a price cheap enough to be attractive and still make money? Well, that would be Joe Biden's buddies in communist China. And all he's got to do is lift the tariffs and those Chinese electric vehicles will come in. We will be wholly dependent on the Chinese communists who bought out the Biden crime family years ago with millions of dollars.
You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. The 40th President of the United States always knew where to put the blame. You have blamed mistakes of the past, and you have blamed the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Along with everything else, the Biden administration seems intent on destroying America. Destroying us with inflation, destroying us by lack of energy, and now there's another front for that attack. And it's not as visible as the gas pump or the bill you get when you go to the grocery store. It is, in fact, America's spirit of innovation and invention and protecting those inventions. Because, after all, if you explain to people why we have a system of patents and copyrights, it's because if somebody sits in his or her garage or basement or wherever they do it, and they come up with something really unique, they have to be able to protect that intellectual property, to think about it simply. And if they can't protect it and there's no benefit from it, then why sit in your garage or your basement for the next 10 years trying to come up with the proverbial better mousetrap? Uh, Andre uh, Iancu, who is a former Trump administration and undersecretary of commerce for intellectual property, joins me now. Andre, welcome to the program. Lars, good to be with you again. I want to ask you about this. There is a uh, there is an effort to try to protect American innovation. It's the uh, Buy Dole Act, and we can talk about that in a moment. But first, I, I want you to describe, uh, so that my audience will believe this, that the Biden administration is trying to say, you may have a patent, you may have a copyright, more focused on patents than anything else, but the, this will allow the government to walk in and simply say, we're going to relicense that patent. It doesn't belong to you anymore. Is that true? That is exactly right. Uh, the Biden administration just recently put out a proposal where they would effectively seize uh, patents, and uh, this is an attempt to effectively nationalize and control the prices of new innovations. And why? what are they saying is the good reason for violating patent law and copyright law that's been around for hundreds of years? Well, uh, the reason for this latest proposal, and uh, we should get into exactly what, uh, what the proposal is, but sure. the, the stated reason is that uh, they think this would help lower the price, uh, the prices of drugs, of pharmaceuticals. Um, however, the reality is that what they're proposing here is not going to reduce the price of anything, number one. Number two, it will actually depress innovation, and we're going to have fewer drugs to begin with. And most importantly, the proposal applies to all technologies, all technologies. You know, they, they, they give examples of vehicle to everything communications like telecommunications between vehicles um you know uh water safety and water purification systems and the like it's broad-based and it would impact the entire economy okay so so they're arguing that if a pharmaceutical company and i know that I, i've not received a dime from a pharmaceutical company uh in fact i have to buy some pharmaceuticals myself and 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 uh, they can be expensive they can also be inexpensive but they would walk into a pharmaceutical company that may have put on average one to three billion dollars into developing a new drug of some kind to treat uh, to treat some ailment or or uh, uh, cure some disease uh and they would say you put in all that money 
but we're now going to take over that patent because some small fraction of the money came from the federal government. So therefore, we're going to tell you, you are not allowed to sell those drugs at the price that will recover all the money you put into them. We will tell you what they're allowed to be sold at. That's what the government wants to do. Exactly. And it's important to note that this applies to, as you have indicated, to patents that have been developed at least in part with some federal funds. Now, there is no limit on that. So even if the federal government contributed a single dollar and industry contributed $2 billion, which, by the way, it's the average cost of bringing a new drug to market, doesn't matter. Just because they've contributed a a single dollar, that would enable the government to what's called march in and take over this particular patent. All right, and it would mean that any company that was that says, gee, we put uh, $2 billion in that last drug, and then the government came in and said, you have to sell it at a price that won't even recover what you put in. That means the next time the pharmaceutical company is saying, we might be able to uh, bring this drug to market, but the average time I think is 12 years now, it takes a long time, and there's all the government red tape that goes with it. That's what adds up a lot of the cost, that they'd say, are we going to put another $2 billion into something else that we're not going to get back? And they're going to make the very easy decision to say, no, we're just going to sell the stuff we've already got, uh, where we already have patents, uh, and, and not drop billions of dollars to developing new drugs, right? Absolutely. It would depress innovation. It would depress investment in new technology. Look, the reality is that innovation, by definition, is risky. It's new. You don't know if it's going to work. In the drug space in particular, it's especially risky, and 9 out of 10 new potential drugs don't make it out of, of, uh, uh, of the research and development lab um, for one reason or another. So, it's risky. It takes a long time, as you've indicated, to develop a drug, and it costs, again, billions of dollars to bring it out. Most importantly, once the drug is actually out, the formula, it's really easy to reverse engineer. And if, if it's not protected by a patent or the rule of law, then anyone can go ahead and reverse engineer a drug immediately upon its release. So... Um, these systems of laws that go back to the founding of this country, the patent system is in the Constitution itself, um, is the one thing that allows a free market economy uh, to be able to operate and create and invest in and create new technology. Without this, who in their right mind would risk, um, uh, would risk their capital on such, on such risky business? I'm talking to Andre Iancu, who's a former Trump administration and undersecretary of commerce for intellectual property about the Biden administration's effort to try to say if the government has even a dollar involved in the development of this new thing at this point, drugs, but it could, as you point out, extend to everything else. So this would extend to every other patent where some, where the government could argue, well, some of the research you used come up with that new device or that new computer code or whatever it is that is the new innovation. It came from government basic research at a local university. Uh, and so they they will have a chance to lay claim, it sounds like, to virtually any new development out there, unless you could find one where you could prove that there was no government involvement at any level through a university, through the federal government, through the NIH or anybody else. They, unless you could prove you were clean of any, any government involvement financially at all, your patent is at risk. Right? 
Absolutely. And, and we do not have to guess at this. In the framework itself, in the document that the, uh, the government put out itself just a few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago, it says expressly, and I'm quoting, Lars, I'm quoting, the framework is not meant to apply to just one type of technology or, or patent. So, um, on its face, it applies to everything. Now, this obviously includes pharmaceuticals, as we, as we have discussed, but it also includes things like new energy sources, new battery technologies, computer chips, silicon manufacturing. Think about this. Just last year, the government passed, the Congress passed the Bipartisan Chips and Science Act. Okay, and the president yep. signed it into law. This is a multi-billion-dollar giveaway that uh, uh, that is meant to encourage American industry to invest more in developing new chip technology. Now, think about this. On the one hand, they're giving this money away, and on the other hand, they're telling the people who are taking this money. American companies who take advantage of the CHIPS Act, that if you do take this money and you do develop something good with it, we, the government, might come in and take it away. Unbelievable. Andre, thank you very much. That's Andre Iancu, who's a former Undersecretary of Commerce uh, in the Trump administration for intellectual property. The Bayh-Dole Act would head off the Biden administration at the pass. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Nixon was wrong about a lot of things, but he's right about this. People have got to know whether or not their presidents are corrupt. What say you, Joe Biden? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I've got a question for you. Is it time for Washington State to pull gray wolves off the endangered species list? And if your first question is, well, are they endangered anymore? No, they're not. But the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife is going to take public comment through May the 6th on a plan to change the classification of gray wolf populations in the state from endangered to merely sensitive. A state endangered designation means the species is threatened with extinction in a significant part of the territory within Washington. Sensitive is defined as vulnerable or declining, but likely to become endangered. There's a big difference there, and the difference may be all about being able to control the wolf population. 
and all the predation they engage in, uh, much of it in big game and some of it in private livestock as well. Uh, I would think that if you want to get your comments in, get them in before the 6th of May. Now, we always go to naysayers first, so Matt is just such a naysayer. Hey, Matt, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Thanks for having me on. So I had, I just thought that the recidivism, I think, is pretty high uh, if you just send somebody to jail. And I think if you give them a felony oh, charge... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Recidivism to what? To drugs or to crime? Uh, well, both, really, because I, I think you're creating more of a criminal when you do send them to prison. But when they get out, and they have a felony charge, they can't get a, a decent job then. And That's you're not kinda... true. That, I mean, well, I get I calls, by the true. way, by the way, your comments are going to spur a whole bunch of felons who do listen to this show. Believe it or not, we have a large, a large number of people who are previous convicted you know, felons who will be happy to tell me and you all day long that they came out of prison, they meant, they amended their ways, and they don't get involved in crime anymore, and they have great jobs. Some of them making six-figure paychecks. So if you start with the you assumption, don't think it's more difficult to get a decent job after you've got a felony charge. Yes, and should it be? Yes. But but all those felons who've called this show who say, when I walk in to get a job, I tell my boss, I have a felony conviction, I have changed my ways, and they said, if a boss says, I don't want anything to do with felons, send you out the door, you go to work for somebody else. And those people have told me that when you are honest with your potential employer, many of those employers will say, hey, as long as you stay on the straight and narrow, I'll be glad to employ you. And as I told you, many of them have called the show. So you're starting with a false premise that a felony conviction will get you no chance of getting a job which is what you said well, now no chance is incorrect you're right no chance is not okay correct. but now you're proving my point though matt do you realize you're proving my point what the system was up to ballot measure 110 was the judge could say if you want to go to trial you're almost certainly going to be convicted you can choose that and get a felony conviction or you can choose treatment and if you'll stay in treatment for a year and stay away from the drugs I will wipe the felony off your record altogether. So it's carrot and stick. So, and do the but, statistics show that that was actually lowering the criminals were staying away from the drugs then? Yes, yes, they were successfully. I mean, if you want, if you want a hundred percent cure, you're not going to find it anywhere in treatment. The best number that anybody has ever given me from treatment people is if you go into drug treatment, there's about a 25% chance of success at best. There's about 75% you will fail. But there are people who, and, and one of them called the show just the other day, and he said, look, I was, I was drug addicted. I went to jail a bunch of times. I went, I, I beat the habit. I got off the drugs. I got a good job. Now I've got a house and a great job and an income and a family and the whole nine yards. That's the reward. But Matt, right now, if you're using what about drugs, education, you, though, what's that? What about educating the criminals instead of just you know? Well, what does education jail? mean in terms of drugs? Drugs are bad. Drugs are dangerous. Drugs might kill you. I I just did it right there. What what kind of education do you think it would do? It would it, it would take to get somebody to well, quit an addiction? Them, it's just for retribution. It's no, it's not retribution. A, it's it's Matt. Here's the mechanism. Right now, if you get caught using drugs, the most the police can do in Oregon is write you a ticket, and you don't even have to pay the fine. So that's your incentive to go into treatment. Here, here's a ticket. Talk to somebody on the phone about treatment. And they put up a quarter of a billion dollars to pay for the treatment under Measure 110. You, guess what happened? 
Nobody, most of the people don't even bother to call the number to get the $100 fine forgiven because they're not going to pay it anyway. And they're effectively judgment proof if you want the lawyer term for it. How do you, how do you collect a $100 ticket from a drug addict living in a tent on the side of the freeway? But if you say, here's this ticket where you go into treatment. They found out after the first year they wrote 6,000 plus tickets. 500 people called the phone number. 50 people went into treatment. With that kind of success record, whereas when the threat was a felony, but you won't have the felony on your record if you'll do a year of treatment and stay away from the drugs, they got about 95% of the addicts to go into treatment to beat the felony being put on their record. Do you see why it worked under the old system and the new system will not work? I see what you're saying. I do, but I don't know if I agree with those numbers. I think that I think that you're well. You're give me better numbers because those numbers are coming people. from the people in the judicial system. I can guarantee you, Matt, right now, these Democrats who've taken these massive contributions from these East Coast interests that wanted to use Oregon like a like a test tube for this stupid idea. They're getting all this money. That's their incentive. Now, if you that thought true. that if the Democrats could have come out and said, "Hey," We had this system where we write tickets to addicts. And guess what? 75%, say even 50% of them entered treatment. The Democrats would be shouting that from the rooftops right now. They're not well, because they know it's failing. Then? Why, why the felony in the, in the, in the jail time? If the is felony the, is, is the, the threat that gets you into treatment. The treatment is what theoretically gets you off the drugs. Not doing it has led us to a thousand deaths last year and a projected 1300 deaths this year go back to the old system we can make it succeed Whoa. again and matt i appreciate the call the Lars Lar with me on the phone today is david moore with equity advantage david for more than 15 years i've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges but how do you explain it to customers well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Is the Lars Larson Show. Never apologize for being patriotic. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. And now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to tell you something because I don't think we recognize America's heroes often enough. But America lost a great hero yesterday. A young man who grew up hunting deer and then made his mark by hunting men. Marine Corps Sergeant Chuck Mawinney called Vietnam the ultimate hunting trip. 
a friend of his who knew that I had met Sergeant Mawinney and that I admired Sergeant Mawinney emailed me yesterday to deliver the news that the single deadliest Marine Corps sniper in history had passed away at his home. Mawinney was born in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, he graduated from high school in 67 during the Vietnam War, and that's when he got his draft notice. And a recruiter had promised him that the Marines, if he signed up with the Marines, would let him go after deer season, so he ditched his plans to be an aviator. It's not a surprise that a teen who grew up hunting, where long shots are the rule, would end up at the Marine Corps Sniper School, which is where he went. Sent to Vietnam, he exceeded all their expectations, 103 confirmed kills and 216 probable kills in just 16 months in Vietnam. And just remember, every one of those kills likely saved the lives of scores of his fellow Marines. Well, he came home after his service, and he was so quiet about it that years later, when a reporter finally came to ask him about his story, some of his neighbors didn't even know he'd been in the military, nor that he had served as he did. So he passed away yesterday at the age of 75. Rest in peace, Sergeant Chuck Mawinney. I wanted to talk to, about Jim, uh, to Jim uh, Lindsay about this, because Jim is the author most recently of The Sniper, the untold story of the Marine Corps' greatest marksman of all time. Jim, welcome to the program. Yeah, uh, thanks for uh, having me, Chuck. I realize I stole a little bit of your thunder, Jim, but but I just uh, the day I met this man, and it was at one of the Marine Corps balls that they held they hold every November the tenth. I I'm not a former Marine, but uh, but I was invited to speak at several of them, and at one of them I met Sergeant Mawinney. But you got to know him a whole lot better than I ever did. So would you mind sharing some of that with my audience? You bet. Um, I'm just. Uh, twice as lucky as you. I got to meet him twice. Uh, first of all, first time was at about 1980. My brother and I bought a ranch in Eastern Oregon, and I went over there. And uh, uh, Chuck and I bumped e into each other, and we had a lot in common as, uh, as far as our age. And we both like drinking beer, and um, we're kind of both outdoorsmen. So uh, we got to be pretty good friends, but. He didn't had had never told anybody about this, so um, I had no idea that he'd ever been in the Marines or anything like that. And so um, after twenty years over there, I got well, we kind of got separated. I don't know uh, how for sure, but um, I come I came back home and I was here. And one night I was watching the TV, and my gosh, there he was, you know, and he was being interviewed it was history channel or something and they talked about all these things he had done in the vietnam war and uh i was just shocked well by then i'd been i'd, I'd taken up writing I'd, I'd written a book and i was writing another book and so i called him i run him down through some friends and he remembered me and so uh so we decided to write a book together about him and and his uh what he did over there and we both agreed to start to write his whole life story. So it starts in uh, the Lakeview, Oregon area, and where he started school, uh, first grade. And and it, he, before that, they left. His family lived with uh, his grandfather, and his his grandfather got him a BB gun, taught him how to shoot, and he just picked up on he. Um, he, could shoot, he told me he could shoot flies off the wall of the barn. <laughs> and so 
so he gets to, into school and uh, and he runs into this another kid, kind of kind of a wild and crazy kid too, that named Dennis. And they got twenty twos pretty soon, and they hit, and Chuck got a motor scooter, and they go up in the mountains, and they and they were just young kids, and they'd stay up there for three or four days, uh, and then uh, and then he got an airplane. He got, actually got an airplane license, and uh, he his father had some friends, and they owned this plane, and they didn't use it. And Chuck got a license, and and uh, he'd get Dennis in, and they'd, they'd take off around the fields of eastern Oregon and shoot uh, rabbits out of the window. From and a plane? Just, from a plane hundreds yeah. of feet in the air, right? Well, that's... it's. Uh, I mean, he was a little bit lower than that, I think. Oh, he shouldn't okay. have been. <laughs> maybe, anyway. maybe the FAA would not approve, but he was apparently an accomplished pilot as well as being a crack shot yeah. from a moving vehicle that even the lightest planes only only uh, they only will. Uh, uh, they, I think they stall below 50 or 60 miles an hour. So imagine trying to shoot a rabbit out of a moving vehicle from the air. Yeah, they went through a lot of ammunition and they'd use it to scout deer. And so and at the meantime, he's he's going through high school and he's uh He's like a service station kid, you know. He, um, it wasn't. He was a pitcher on the baseball team, but other than that, they're pretty much Dennis and him and some other friends were into cars and motorcycles. And he worked. And, and Shark worked at the Ford garage after school. And uh, and he liked drinking beer. And he got, and he just gets caught. He, um, Dennis and him out over and over again. And his dad was. Uh, uh, he was a. Uh, he was a police. It worked in the police department. He was a policeman. Oh my god! And it was really embarrassing. And so, finally, about the time Chuck was going to get um, out of high school, they they captured him and uh, with a trunk load of beer, and they put him in jail for the weekend. Thought so maybe that would help him. And uh, during that time is when he decided that when he got as soon as he graduated, he better leave town. So he. So he ended up going and, he, and accidentally joined the Marines, and he wanted to be an aviator. So then he goes to uh, goes down to um, San Diego to boot camp. MCRD, yeah. Yeah, just loved shooting. And he, well, they were going to have this test for aviation, and him and two other guys went out on the town. And they woke up, Chuck woke up in a movie theater at 5 in the morning. Uh-oh. And he said, so he flunked the test. Well, then he was going to have to wait around for a month for the next test to wash the dishes, and this scout sniper school opened up, and so he loved shooting, and uh, he had done really well. So, I mean, he, he was—they took him happily, took him into it. Uh, he was good at it. And that's a tough school. It's all about knowing where you're at at all times, day and night, and <clears throat> and he just took to it. He was just uh, a natural, and <clears throat> so then he went to Vietnam and as a sniper, but they weren't looking for snipers, so he had to be a regular uh, grunt over there until he finally talked his way into a sniper platoon at Anwa, which is just 20 miles from Da Nang. Unbelievable. You can read the whole story in the book, The Sniper, The Untold Story of the Marine Corps' Greatest Marksman of All Time, Sergeant Chuck Mahoney, who served in Vietnam, greatest number of confirmed and probable kills, and he did it in just 16 months. He passed away this week, the day before Valentine's Day, at the age of 75. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Purchases. More info at oregongunlaw.com. Gun Control Explained. Want to stop drunk drivers from killing sober drivers? Ban sober drivers. That's how gun control works. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm always glad to take your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Uh, glad to have you listening on the Radio Northwest Network. We've at least endeavored uh, to serve the people of the Pacific Northwest on this program for the last, uh, what is it now, about 25 years, 24 years. Uh, so we're glad to do that. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Our poll on X, used to be Twitter, uh, can be found at Lars Larson Show. Should the White House release the transcript of the elderly man with a bad memory? Of course, I'm talking about Joe Biden, who is not going to face prosecution for his admitted crimes involving national security documents because he's an old man with a bad memory. So, should the White House release the transcript? I would answer that one, yes. You can answer any way you like, at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Let's go first to uh, Sam. Hey, Sam, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Hey, thanks for having me. And I'd just like to start by saying it is very apparent that you and the people that you work with to put on the show are professionals and very good at your job. We try, um, but it's it's live radio, so we make mistakes from time to time. I was just telling my producer, I make enough mistakes in my life. I've decided it's easier just to fess up to them and say, okay, I goofed, here's the correction. That That's so easy, and it's so conscience-clearing, as opposed to those people who want to fight about things like that. But thank you for the compliment. So, um, I was listening earlier uh, when they're talking about uh, what whether we should recriminalize hard drugs. And yep. I, you are completely correct as far as the benefit that facing a felony did to push people into treatment. And now there's no path to force them into treatment. Um, are you one of but, those? Uh, no, I am not. Okay. I, so occasionally I, have, I get I calls from former addicts. It, yeah. I have seen friends not make it through, and I have worked in outreach programs um, 
throughout different times in my life. So I have seen firsthand how the best intentions don't always work the way people think they do. Yep. Um, if you'd asked me years ago, I would have called myself a naysayer, but I feel like more and more it's hard for me to say that to you on your show um, because it seems like the counterpoint to anything you bring up is very irrational. Um, I try, I, you know, I try, I, I know it sounds like, uh, and what was it, Twain said, uh, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds, but I do try to be consistent. I mean, if I'm going to support something, it's not just some thumbnail attitude I got where I said, hey, I think I'll be in favor of this today. You know, I, I usually try to study uh, whatever it is I'm going to talk about and decide, am I right? And one of the keys to that is reading the other side. So if I decide to be for something, I read the people who are against it, and then I say, hey, if they've got good arguments, maybe I should reconsider my position. But, uh, but with that in mind, here's the thing that I find frustrating, Sam. We now know the best estimate of the expected fentanyl deaths this next year, the next 12 months in Oregon, is 1,300. So imagine having something that you know to a fair certainty is going to kill almost four people a day for the next 12 months. And if you said, would it be a problem in your state if there was something you knew about that would kill an average of four people a day for the next year, and we could make a small change, uh, and it would have the result of saving many, even even half of those lives, wouldn't people automatically say, well, then let's do it? Except the Democrats are saying, we don't want to do it, because if we do what you're asking us to do, we're going to lose hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, of campaign contributions. And you say, oh. So dying constituents is not a problem for you as long as your campaign war chest is full. That seems like a really evil point of view. The fact that it's an evil Democrat point of view doesn't surprise me one bit. I think that using social issues as political pieces in a, game, in a political game as opposed to problems that need to be solved is fairly evil no matter which side is doing it. Agreed. Um, Agreed. And I do agree with you that uh, to what you said as to how it is being done currently and who is doing that. Um, I don't think people should face felonies for not being able to handle their fentanyl. If a person chooses to use fentanyl and they can handle it, okay. If you're passed out on the street doing fentanyl in the max, unable to handle yourself on it, there should be a penalty for that. How about instead of a year in jail, a year in a treatment program as the penalty. And, I don't or, know if I, I don't know if they can legally do that because the minute you go in a treatment program, if you go into jail, they decide the system decides whether you can leave or not. As I understand most treatment programs, if you go into a treatment program, even if the judge said, "I'm ordering you to go to a treatment program," if you walk out the door, what is the penalty? So it. I do not think that there's a reason that our state legislature could not uh, pass a criminal code with a penalty that is your it's jail, but it's real it's treatment instead of incarceration. So, in other words, uh, we have to take there are an estimated four hundred uh, three hundred eighty thousand fentanyl addicts in the state of uh, fentanyl and opioid addicts in the state of Oregon. So, if you're going to treat one percent of that number of 380,000, you're going to need tens of thousands of 
what, drug treatment lockups, right? Because they're going to have to have all the functions of a jail, the ability to lock people up and hold them against their will and and treat them at the so, same time. We worked in lockdown facilities for mental health, and we were not quite like a jail, and we most certainly held people against their will. Um, Could you create, now, but, but think about this, could you create tens of thousands of those lockups? Because that's, right. that's talking about that something brand new. Question. What's that? That? Is, that is a very, that, that is, that is the, that then becomes the discussion and the question is, what is, what are the logistics of providing different options as, of treatment and solutions as opposed to arguing back and forth as to whether or not it's a problem? But, but let me ask you a simpler question because we're coming to about, I, I hit a hard break and people say, Lars, you ran that guy up against a break. No, the breaks happen at the same time That's every single day. Check, check yeah. your digital watch if you don't believe me. But, if if the old system of a threat of a felony caused people to go into treatment voluntarily and in many cases successfully complete a year of treatment, if that worked and now we're saying this doesn't work, we both concluded that, and you're saying what if we create a brand new system that say has room to lock up 5,000 people for treatment against their will and successfully hold them and God knows what that's going to end up costing, 5,000 of those spaces why don't we just go back to the system that worked before? My quick response to that is we don't necessarily need a new system if the fastest, best solution is to put the old one in place while we figure out how to modify it. That would be the best solution. Well, the, the, what was happening before Measure 110 was approved was a couple of hundred fentanyl overdoses. Now we're headed for 1,300 fentanyl overdoses just two years later. I would say the old system probably worked a whole lot better. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. I just love seeing the liberals in Washington, D.C., as they complain about conservatives banning books, because we're actually not suggesting banning books. We're just saying that in schools, especially government-run schools, maybe kids shouldn't be seeing books and materials that are uh, age-inappropriate. And if you're somebody who doesn't understand that, don't have kids until you do, because you have to understand there are certain things that young kids should not see. But while the Biden administration has been saying, oh, these evil conservatives are trying to ban books, what was the Biden White House trying to do, uh, especially during the first year uh, when the pandemic was still ongoing and there was a desperate effort to go out and convince everybody to take the jab, which, by the way, I have not, so I may have a dog in the fight. I wanted to talk about it with Casey Maddox, who's vice president for legal and judicial strategy at Americans for Prosperity. Casey, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. So what was the Biden White House trying to do uh, in terms of pressuring Amazon and books it was selling? Yeah, this uh, basically the, the story that broke uh, just, uh, I think, the uh, uh, end of last week uh, is that the Biden administration was uh, pressuring Amazon uh, 
um, over uh, books that were being sold on on Amazon that they thought uh, were uh, contra the, the narrative uh, that they were trying to cast concerning COVID. And so they were pressuring Amazon either to remove books uh, from Amazon or at least to uh, demote the books in the search results that you would get uh, on Amazon because they didn't like the content uh, in those books. That sounds a whole lot like um, a book ban. Um, that's not government deciding uh, what it's going to use uh, books for and which curriculum or, or something like that. That's government actually trying to make it uh, impossible for you to purchase a book or at least very difficult to find a book. And that's um, a particularly concerning thing coming from the federal government. Yeah, especially since they have to operate under the First Amendment. I mean, yeah, I guess in, in, in old school, before the uh, advent of Amazon and the Internet, it would have been like being able to go to Barnes & Noble, for example, and say, by the way, could you make sure that your stores don't carry this book as much? We're not telling you to take it off the shelves altogether, but don't carry as much of it and certainly put the book somewhere in a back corner where people are less likely to find it. That way, the White House can preserve deniability, plausible deniability, and say, we didn't ban the book. We didn't ask them to take it out of the store. We just asked them to put it somewhere where people weren't likely to find it and buy it. Yeah, I think it's exactly like that. Um, and, and this is just the most recent version of something like this that the Biden administration has been doing. Of course, you also have uh, this this story that, that people have been connected to for some time about how they were pressuring social media companies uh, to delete users, uh, eliminate users, or or at least uh, delete you know tweets or, or posts from users because of the content uh, from those users. And that case is actually going to the Supreme Court pretty soon. You've got a, a case that the court's going to hear about uh, whether the Biden administration violated the First Amendment. Uh, well, I mean, for instance, was was part of that case Jay Bhattacharya, the doctor from Stanford, exactly who took right. a contrary, and I tended to agree with Dr. Bhattacharya, but he uh, he took a contrary view, and since he was an outcast, they didn't make him quite drink hemlock, but, but they came as close as they could in the modern version. No, that's exactly right. And so when you put these stories together, you're left with... Um, you know, a, a story of a, of a administration here that uh, its response to ideas that it doesn't like seems to be to try to coerce private businesses, private companies, uh, to do its bidding um, and censor those ideas rather than engage with them. And by the way, since you're in charge of legal and judicial strategy, you're an attorney, right, Casey? I, I am. I, okay. I have the misfortune of being an attorney. <laughs> well, we make fun of attorneys all the time, but I'm not. But I've told my audience before that anything the government is forbidden to do because it violates the civil rights, the constitutional rights of Americans, it also cannot do through someone who becomes its agent. In other words, if the DA can't kick your door down and search your house without permission, the DA can't ask one of your buddies or one of your enemies to go kick the door down for him and go search your house saying, well, he's not constrained by the First Amendment. If he uses somebody else as an agent, it's the same thing. It's still a violation of the constitutional rights by the government, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The government can't do indirectly what it can't do directly. And that's a very basic principle of constitutional law, but it's one that this administration seems to be, uh, be forgetting. And it's very important, especially as the government grows more and more and more powerful, especially the federal government, as it becomes more powerful, it's particularly important to remind it that just because it has relationships and uh, regulatory relationships with all of these private entities, it doesn't get the power to use them to its will. 
Because in Amazon's case or any uh, online retailer or information provider, they all sort of operate at the whim of the government. The government could change the rules of the game, Section 230. They could change a lot of things that would have a detrimental effect on the company. So when they get a call from somebody at the White House or inside the administration somewhere, even if it's not the White House, they understand these are people who can punch our ticket anytime they want. No, that's absolutely true. And it's why, you know, part of the interesting and uh, maybe heartening, uh, we'll, we'll add the, uh, the, the hopeful part of this story, is that in both the social media cases, and especially here with Amazon, Amazon pushed back against the government and said, no, we're not going to remove books um, from our platform. And even in the social media cases, while a lot of content was uh, censored, one of the things that comes out of those cases is that um, more than people, I think, would expect, you have the social media companies going back to the government and saying, these things don't violate our policy. Um, and it was only after a lot of pressure from the federal government that uh, these platforms started uh, removing content. Uh, so it's, it's at least hopeful that you see these private businesses that I think a lot of people would not expect to have stood up to the government uh, were at least standing up to them. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that you have the Biden administration itself. Uh, you know, again, its response to, to bad ideas was to try to go uh, to, to, to attempt to censor those ideas, and that's troubling. Well, and, and here's the other thing, Casey, I'd like to ask you about, and that is, so you've got the administration doing this. What was driving them to do this? Because I understand that Joe Biden is saying, hey, take the shot, you can't catch COVID, a lie. Uh, take the shot, you won't go to the hospital, a lie. We want people to take the shot. We don't want people selling books that cause people to be skeptical. If you really believe you're on the side of the angels, then why not just say, sell all the books you want. We're going to tell people this is good for them. What was driving them to be to go to the point of violating the First Amendment of the Constitution by trying to censor books in a way so that people saw them less? You know, in order, I understand why the Biden administration wanted to hide the Hunter Biden laptop. Why were they so, they so anxious to hide books that were skeptical about the jab? You know, it, it's uh, it, it's perplexing. Uh, you you have. The, the loudest voice that you could possibly have. You have the, the weight of the federal government behind you. So you can get your own message out. You can make the case for what you believe uh, is true. Um, and you don't have to censor, uh, you know, people who, who disagree with you. You have plenty of opportunities to be able to express yourself. Um, and so, and all this does, by the way, um, is look, when the Biden administration is right about a public health uh, issue, all it does is, is, diminish the confidence that people have in the institutions that we need to have confidence in for public health reasons. If the Centers for Disease Control, which does good work in a lot of cases, but if the Centers for Disease Control um, and other parts of the, the federal government are going to be agents of censorship rather than, um, you know, explaining the science and doing it in a credible way, all it's going to do is when there's actually something that that we need to know about, when there's a health concern that we need to know about, you, you've torched all of your credibility. Absolutely right. That's Casey Maddox. He is Vice President for Americans for Prosperity. Casey, it's always a pleasure. Back in a moment, you're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
When it comes to with me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. He may talk about serious issues, but even Lars has a sense of humor. I have a joke for you. The government in this town is excellent and uses your tax dollars efficiently. (laughs) This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. This segment of the program is brought to you on the Radio Northwest Network by the home power generating folks at Protect Power. Make sure your loved ones are safe. When the power goes out, call 541-ONA-GEN. That's 541-ONA-GEN. At the White House right now, among all the other problems that Joe Biden has ginned up, he's got this one. He gave uh, his testimony, uh, an interview with the special counsel, the lawyer, Robert Hur, about his theft of classified documents over the last 50 years or so. And in that, the special counsel was convinced that Joe Biden had done the deed, that he willfully retained classified documents, that he took them without legal authority, and that he shared them with people without legal authority. In other words, he did the crime. Will he do the time? No, the special counsel decided after a conversation with Joe Biden, he decided the jury would see him as just an elderly man with a bad memory. Should the White House release the transcript of that elderly man with a bad memory? I say, yeah, let America read it. And then they can make up their own minds. Does Joe Biden have it together upstairs and between his ears? Or is he completely lost in space? Uh, you can answer the poll on X at Lars Larson Show. And it's always brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's go to Michael. Hey, Michael, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Thank you for having me. Uh, you were talking to that guy about being in prison and drugs and all that. Yeah, and about the fact that uh, that the threat of a felony conviction is usually a pretty good incentive to go into treatment for a year, wipe out the felony, get off the drugs, and get back on with your life. And there was a gentleman who called in and said, well, Lars, if you give a, a person a felony, they can never find a good job. What would you think of that claim? Well, uh, he is very wrong. I've been doing drugs since I was 13 years old. I'm 69 now. Wow. Uh, my last time, I went three times in prison. And as soon as you get out, where do you go? Right drugs. back to the drugs. Yep. And uh, this time in, I figured, you know, I'm just tired of this crap. And uh, so I came out uh, 11 years ago now. I got a job within three days. I make $60,000 a year. Good for you. Good for you. And so so obviously not not the felon who can't find a good job, right? Yeah, no, I was. I was the one that found the good job. 
And, and by only, the way, let I me ask you something, Michael. When you go when you go into interview for a job, the last time you did, whenever that if that was eleven years ago, I don't know if you've had the same job. Were you honest with your employer and say, "Look, I've got a felony on my record, or two or three, And did you tell well, your you, boss? Yeah, yeah, of course I did. Because nowadays they, uh, you know, check your background check, so it's going to show up anyway. And uh, I told him I did. I told him I was a a real bad drug addict. But uh, and the deal is. Uh, all these people going to drug programs, I have three friends that are still into drugs. I've been to drug three times. Uh, it didn't do me no good. It's just like going to jail. You get out of jail. You couldn't smoke in jail. What's the first thing you want when you walk out the door? Pack you a want cigarette. a cigarette. Yep. Yeah. And so drugs are the same way. As soon as you get out, you're heading right to the drug dealer. Well, did you ever beat it? Uh, it sounds like you beat it. Are you Are you still getting high? No, I haven't been high. I got, went to prison in 97. I did 15 and a half years this time because I'm in wow. Washington, and they do by point system, so they just give you more and more and more time. So I did my 15 and a half. I didn't do one drug while I was in there. I got out. I've never touched another drug, and I still am friends with my three guys that do drugs all the time. I go over to their house. I talk to them. I see them. Uh, they've offered me. I just tell them, no, I am done. I'm not going to jail ever again. I'm not going to do this stuff anymore. I'm just through with the whole system. In fact, I've got like two tickets driving because that's what I do is drive. But yeah. uh, I go right straight to the police department or courthouse. As soon as I get the ticket, I pay it, and they offer me, well, you know, you could get this off of your record if you go to the uh, a school, and I said, well, what's that mean? Well, you go there and pay $250. Well, wait a minute. The ticket's $180. I'm just going to pay the ticket. I don't even want to go to court. I don't even want to be in that courtroom ever again. Hey, Michael, when you talk to your friends, I, I don't know that you'd say this to your friends, but they understand this is probably, if it's the hard drugs, probably going to kill them one of these days. Do they get that? No, they get it. They And I... I've done heroin. I didn't like it because if I wanted to go to sleep, I'll just go to sleep. <laughs> so I was more into the speed and the cocaine and stuff like that. I don't even smoke pot no more. I don't do nothing. Yeah, Is it I too do. much of a temptation or you just decide you don't like being high? No, I just decided I don't want to go to jail ever again. And I don't know if that's what did it because... You know, I could still go do drugs if I wanted. I just, no, I'm done. It's just too much of a hassle. The first time I went to prison was in 1972. Wow. And I tell people now that that was the funnest time of my life. I got high. The guards, you couldn't, you could tell them to go to hell, and they never did nothing. Nowadays, the guards run the prison. You don't do nothing without them knowing. So I just don't like that way of life no more. And uh, like going to a drug free program, the only way I got sober, I just decided I'm done. Yeah, after 15 years in the joint. Michael, good for you for getting on the straight and narrow. You got the Lars Larson show. The Lars Larson. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? 
Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you, your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.